work something out. Um, what am I saying? Okay, Titus, Titus 2. So open your Bibles there. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can click on events, find Reservoir Church, and all of the notes and scripture will be there for you. Um, the scripture will also be on the screen, or you can just hear it as it is read. And Chris is going to read for us. And um, you should know before service this morning, Chris asked all the vital questions about this text. And so we'll see if we cover them in the sermon. And if not, you can talk to her after and see if she has a better answer. All right, so Chris will read, pray for us, and then we'll get into it this morning. No pressure, okay. Chris. Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent, opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, thank you for um, your word to Titus in, in particular and his role in your church, Lord, and, um, and just the role that you give us, Lord, on a day-to-day -day basis to be your light in this world, Lord, to shine as your light, God. And I just pray that you would um, help us to um, take these to heart, Lord, and give us the power of your Holy Spirit to live these words in our lives, God, so that more people would come to know you, Lord. Um, and we just pray that you would bless this message today and help um, Jonathan as he um, teaches it to us and help us as we apply it and hear it and open our understanding, God. And we pray that all would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I totally forgot to give um, Audrey props. So we went to a field hockey game on Wednesday, and, was, and she scored, and it was amazing. Freshman on the varsity team. Way to go, Audrey. And those, that's her natural color. She's not blushing. So. <laughs> All right, Titus 2, 1 through 10. The, or the church makes the gospel attractive by how we live. Right? That we actually have a purpose as we come to faith in Christ, that we're called to live in a certain way, and that way is to make the gospel beautiful to those that are around us. It, many of you know, or it, certainly if you're in, your, in my family, that I have a keen sense of smell. 
right? So careful what you smell like around me. I have a very sensitive nose, right? Stacy will tell you. And smells have essentially imprinted themselves on key memories that I have um, in my life. And they're like fairly random moments, um, even that are, have become like core memories because of the smell that was fragrant at that moment. I often talk about my choice in international um, airlines, and it's because of a smell, right? I was on this long international flight, and I was uncomfortable and dehydrated, and in the middle of the night in that flight, an angel in the form of a flight attendant gave me a cool glass of water, and they smelled amazing and all of the flight attendants in this airline has the, like the same fragrance because they all smelled the same and it, it was a fragrance that brought peace and that sounds so weird and so crazy but that was the reality of it and so if you ever need to fly internationally I recommend Air France right then I remember also I was thinking about this week and I almost gagged myself right this not so sweet memory of unloading um, junk um, out of my father-in-law's Tahoe into the dump in, would it be Benton County of, of Oregon, right? And this dump stank. And it was a hot summer day, but the smell was so ripe that it actually even made me sick. And even as I think of it now, I can still smell it a little bit in my nostrils. And it's disgusting. It's been like a decade or more since that ha has happened, right? So these smells have imprinted themselves on my memory and they can bring back the experience like in a heartbeat. And imagine, though, how things like they generally smell pretty good now. Right. But imagine how they smelled in the first century and what it was like to live then. Thankfully, due to advancements in hygiene, we are not faced with aromas that uh, as often as we could be. Right. Some of us smell really good. Lance is a good friend of mine that is a, often a very good smelling young man. You should just, you know this. But I often tell him, don't I? I always say, dude, you smell so good. How do I get in on this smell, right? But we've realized that pleasant is better. And so we try to, you know, shower, take care of ourselves and put on a little fragrance to smell better. It, there is something even to smelling when it comes to faith. Trust me, right? And we talk about this a lot at Reservoir Church, what we want to smell like. But metaphorically, we are an aroma, aren't we? We're supposed to be. And we're an aroma that others around us will actually tie to the gospel that we proclaim. They'll remember what they smelled when they heard the truth of Jesus. And it's a fragrance that will be imprinted in their memory whenever the name of Jesus is brought up. And it's actually supposed to be that way. And Paul, in his uh, letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2, and I love it because he mentions Titus in this section. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
So as the gospel is being preached, there's to be an aroma about those that preach it. And with that in mind, we traverse the second chapter of Titus this morning. And this is a letter that's been outlining how the church is to exist in contrast to the prevailing narratives of the culture of the world and certainly of that day on Crete. And Paul has already been exhorting his disciple to that vital work of appointing elders, as we've already talked about, in every city, those that are beyond reproach, the faithful men over and against the false teachers that also exist in that environment who stir up the people for shameful gain and who actually look just exactly like the lying, evil, and gluttonous world that is around them. And we saw in verse 16 of the first chapter of this letter, letter, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Right? And now Paul hits this contrasting reality again with the church that is now increasingly Christ-like. They've heard the truth of the gospel. They're being transformed, being reshaped into something and we get this reality that the church makes the gospel attractive by how we live now while we could approach this text in a few different ways for our purposes this morning i just want us to notice a a couple of key things that the church should actually embrace that they're to be about essentially what gospel living looks like and then why we live that way like what's the point and the purpose of it and it's that life first accords with the gospel. There is a way of living that is in response to the truth of Christ's um, righteousness given to you through the work of the cross, right? We see it immediately after that contrast of those false teachers, Paul writes to Titus and says, but as for you, which we expanded not only to Titus, but to the whole church as we talked about it last week, teach what accords with sound doctrine what accords with healthy doctrine, the grace of Christ, forgiveness and new life in him, that trustworthy word that they were taught, that established the church. And there is actually a way of life that follows the gospel, right? There are works that prove the existence of a community's faith that are supposed to be there. And we've heard in our day that refrain, especially like in the last several years, oh, just preach the gospel. And it always comes up when there's tough issues or tensions in our culture that the church is supposed to speak with clarity the truth of how humanity is to be treated and loved and served and that people don't like that perspective that you may bring and say, I just wish you would treat, you just preach the gospel, right? Happens a lot in political things and to be honest when i hear someone say you just need to preach the gospel all i hear them saying is you should hate your neighbor right because they've missed that preaching the gospel then develops in people a way of living that looks vastly different than the experience of the culture one writer says notice how two one does not read paul does not say but as for you teach sound doctrine Right? Instead, he exhorts, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, Titus was to teach believers what kind of lifestyle fits Paul's gospel. Like 
how do you respond? What are the implications of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ for us? That it's to form a different way of living. There are implications to the gospel. They're certainly individual, right? You're not left in sin. You're called to transformation to be more like Jesus as a person as an individual but there's also then these corporate implications for us in the church that we are to collectively display what Jesus does in and through his people so we're adorning the gospel in this way how we live there is a life that accords with the gospel and that's what Titus is to teach the whole church what the whole church then is to be all about what they strive for, what they live for, what they challenge each other in, what they stir one another on. And firstly, in this reality, we have to realize that these things are done in community. Believers relating to one another like a family. This last week, one of our dear friends that many of us support and we talk about an occasion doing ministry in North Africa. He had the chance to be in Algeria with a team of global workers, and they visited the hermitage of Charles de Foucault, some hundred years ago Catholic priest that tried to preach to local tribes along this important trade route in Algeria. And he was eventually martyred for that. He was killed because he was proclaiming the truth of Christ. And for close to 100 years since that moment, there's been a solitary priest that lives on the grounds to perpetuate the history, essentially to, to keep everything as it was and to let other pilgrims come and know the, the truth uh, that this guy proclaimed, right? And the current priest has been there by himself for 15 years. Can you imagine? It's a very hostile space. It's like nobody is going to, like, there's not an expectation anyway that the church is going to be extended and grow in that. And it's a very solitary life for him. If a visitor or Westerner doesn't come in from outside, it's unlikely he's going to talk to anyone for a stretch of time. And I heard that story and I thought of like just the historic appeal of the aesthetics, right? That you're to go away into the wilderness to be alone, right? And I, and I thought about it, and I'm turning on the air. I forgot to do it. Are you guys warm? Yes, Jackie's warm. Let's turn it on. Okay, and then who set it to 85? Right? That was Bill. I'm sure. Right? So solitude's important, right? And I'm even going to go on a solitude retreat tomorrow and spend a couple of days in the wilderness, hopefully, and, you know, hear from the Lord, Right? But solitude's not actually meant to be our constant experience. It's not meant to be our regular state of being as people that are following Jesus. We are meant for the community of the church. We're meant to be with each other. We're meant to have mothers and fathers in the faith pouring into the next generation with here Titus serving as a big brother type, living an example for everyone in the church. Paul even tells them, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, if we only focused on the exhortations of the categories of people that are here, we might miss that they are all called to this way of life for the good of the church, that they are to live this way for the good of those around them, for those that will be coming before and after them. 
Paul Gian, a scholar, says the purpose of individual piety mainly or solely for one's personal edification is foreign to the gospel. Life in Christ is life in community. The blind cannot lead the blind. Older men can teach self-controlled lives only if they have pursued it themselves. Older women can train younger women to be reverent in behavior, especially as it is embodied in being good wives and mothers, only if they have attempted to do so as well. So the corporate dynamics here indicate why Paul expects ministry to occur through more than just the leadership of the church. Because yes, elders are there to lead, but the apostle here clearly assigned to all in the Christian community a role. You all have a place and a space and a role to play. The older are to reach the younger, the experienced are to pass along their experience to those coming after them, parents to children, those inside the circle to those outside the circle. Everybody has the role of making God real to someone else. So it's in community, but we make God real by in community living Christ-like lives that's what he's laid out before us here and let's just walk through the categories and recognize that they're all starkly different from the description of the Cretan culture right it starts with older men they're to be sober-minded dignified self-controlled sound in faith love and steadfastness right there's the the anchors of the church steady and tested and faithful because Jesus has been faithful to us and so these are the grandpas and the uncles in the church that have stories to tell but they tell them in light of the gospel right and like when we need we have a good contingent of asian folk in our church so a lot of people can end up being uncle and auntie and we just if we we're going to steal that from those of you that are asian and even white folks let's start calling people uncle and auntie in this place because we are a family and they're to be the uncles that exemplify for us what life in Christ looks like, right? There's then older women and they actually get the most in care. So older women are vital to the life of the church. Just like the men, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. You know, ladies and their wine. <clears throat> I actually think that's a really bad interpretation of the text. It, this is, so Paul, the words that in our translation in the ESV say sober-minded for the old, older men are essentially like he avoids much drinking, right? And so Paul is just using a different cluster of words to say the exact same thing that he said for older men, for older women, but we have interpreted that and say, oh, they're not slaves to much wine, but it has that same thrust that they're sober-minded, they're temperate in their lives so yet you should not be slaves to much wine men or women here but it has the 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 kind of force here is that they're sober-minded individuals you think slaves and much wine was bad the next sentence says they are to teach what is good period um and i don't see this as narrowly as some may and there's you know in the greek text there is no punctuation and so English translations have added punctuation. The ESV adds a comma after that statement. The NIV, NLT put a period after that statement. Either way, when women teach, they are to teach just like the elders that are holding fast to sound doctrine. They are to teach what is good. 
And those watching will take notice. Right? And the specifically here, they're training the young women, trained by older women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. That's the, the theme here. Pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. Should we just leave that? Just move on, or do you want to talk more about that? Right? This is a, a great text, right? It's all in contrast to what seems to be that first century disregard for the centrality of the family, right? We see elsewhere in the Roman world how children are regularly discarded because they kind of get in way of the life of self and the pursuit of your own existence, right? Remember, the church makes a name for itself by rescuing babies from the ash heap. So this is fairly normative in the broader culture that they see that family is not a high priority. Self is seen as the priority. And here in the church, the family is actually valued and nurtured. And that's how you respond to the truth of the gospel. Paul here says working at home or busy at home. And it's a rare Greek word, okurgos, and I'm terrible with Greek, but it can be translated essentially as good managers of the household. So this is a command not to say that women are supposed to be cooped up at home, but to exercise managerial gifts and skills for the family's sake, that they take kind of the lead in the domestic reality of the family. And so it certainly does not rule out working outside of the home or bringing income. And part of the challenge is that we bring this, the Western modern view of what work means and we put it on a first century um, existence and it just doesn't correlate. Everybody in the family is doing things to provide for the family in the first century, right? And it's, it, women aren't just making bread. I mean, the hardest part of making bread is what? Making flour, Right? And so it's real work, hard work. And we can't preach Proverbs 31 and say, well, that's, you know, well, that's, she's the outside example compared to what happens in the New Testament. No, there's just this managerial thrust of caring for the family as nurture, stewarding the home out of love that's modeled for the younger women by the older women's lives. And it becomes increasingly countercultural, not just in that day, but in our day as well. Right? So what then about being submissive to their own husbands? Should I paint Titus 2.5 over the mantle at my home? Not if I want to still have a key that works to it. Right? I love what one scholar says. It's important to notice what Paul does not say, right? Because he could have said, husbands, subject your wives to yourselves, right? In other words, he might have spoken in such a way that called on husbands to compel or coerce submission from their wives, even though that would have fit with the patriarchal context of the first century Greco-Roman world. That is not how Paul writes here. But instead, he calls on wives to submit voluntarily to their husbands. And so the primary responsibility falls to the wives to submit themselves, not to the husbands explicitly to make them submit. So the word of God may not be reviled indicates that failure to carry out this role gives outsiders grounds to criticize God's word, which is something that no Christian has permission to do. Right. 
Sometimes I think we can read a text like this and say, see, it's proving the authority and the power of the man, and he has to force everyone around him to submit. Or we do crazy things. It's like, well, all women should submit then to all men in this space. It's like, uh, no, it's to their own husband, right? So just as the church has roles, so does family. And there's to be this mutual giving of oneself for the good of the spouse and the good of the family that Paul is describing here, where the wife seeks and submits to the to family leadership of the husband, the husband then also is to lead and give of himself to, or himself just as Christ has. This is not the only place that Paul's written about it, right? We know Ephesians 5, 22 through 29. Let's just hear it. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Again, it's specific to the one you're married to. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. It's like marital counseling. Well, my wife doesn't submit to me. Do you nourish and cherish her? There's a mutuality that is to be existent here that is for the good of the family and the good of the church. And it's clear here that this is not a harsh or burdensome um, submission, but instead it's a surrender to the way that the Lord has called us and that the culture around us has absolutely no frame for. It just doesn't make sense to them. But there's a lot about the church that does not make sense to those that are outside of it, right? It's a fragrance is death to death, but to those that know Jesus, it's life to life. And the key is these harder things in this text are not for women only because over and over again, we hear the English word likewise, right? So it's like building women or the older men do this. Likewise, the older women do this. Likewise, the younger women do it. Likewise, the younger men do this. Paul writes that younger men should be self-controlled, responding to the example of integrity, dignity, and sound speech that they have seen already from the whole church and then live in light of this. And all of this is living like Jesus, right? And Paul, having modeled this for Titus, calls on his young pastor friend to essentially do the same. One writer says that Titus cannot merely teach faithfully, he must live Faithfully, If Titus cannot live faithfully as a Christian, he is not qualified to teach others what he himself cannot do. He must be able to say to his congregation, just as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I think sometimes we, I don't want to talk about pastors, but I'm one, so I will, right? 
we're called, elders are called to be examples. We've talked about this over and over again in Reservoir Church, that our lives are not just to be the promotion of a certain doctrinal stance or a theology, but that you're actually to see how we live and surrender our existence for the glory of Christ, right? Our giving of ourselves for the good of others. It's an example. And this is what Paul is calling Titus to. It's like, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Like, get the doctrine right, but you have to have the life that follows after that. And we have far too many that lead our churches today that have really good doctrine, but their lives are awful because they've missed Jesus. And so it's the elder's responsibility to keep me to account as well. That if my life gets off track or I'm not living in light of the gospel, that my life is not according with sound doctrine that there's correction there there's call to repentance and my wife will help the elders right she sees it the most but then lastly he says slaves or bond servants those that are often outside of the family situation right they're to be submissive to their master well-pleasing not stealing showing all good faith and it's those economically tied to another are to live in this way. And we see this effort essentially as an example for how any of us work in our modern existence, right? That it's different because we're not begrudgingly laboring just for a paycheck, but we're serving with honor. And wherever we are, we live as unto Christ in that space. And so this whole list is for the whole church. It's for the single to see examples of those that have clung to Christ and his good news and lived in light of that. It's for the married, certainly, that the family would be formed and be cared for in this. And it is even for those that are by choice celibate to honor the Lord. And they all, these sections, teach each other something. Single folks teach us about the hope of future. Married folks teach us a contentment in the reality of what God has called us to. And those that are celibate by choice teach us all what it means to live for holiness before the Lord. So we're not meant to look at these exhortations with a bent to nitpick them, but to see them as the fruit of the transformation that we're promised in Jesus, right? One pastor says believers need concrete help and guidance for parsing out what godliness looks like. Training in godliness is more than offering vague ideals of goodness and piety. The specificity of Paul's instructions might rattle some of us, but the problem is not with any legalistic tendencies on Paul's part. Rather, it may result from our proclivity for ambiguity, which allows for acceptable sins to persist in our lives. Mm. So Paul's list of gospel fruit here, combined, combined with lists of Fruit in other epistles, such as Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, they make plain that grace is not an excuse for sin, but instead godliness is not merely an option for Christians. It's essential for us. Just how we're called to live and the rules do not change, but the reasons do as love for the God of grace becomes the primary motivation of the Christian life. Not to earn something, but because we've been given far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And likewise, all of the church, essentially. like The big takeaway from these descriptions of what it means to be sober-minded and self-controlled is that the church should not be jerks. 
For some of us, like, we just need to start there. Lord, this week I'm working on not being a jerk. To anybody, to my family, to coworkers, to those in the schools, or to those that I might meet at Vaughn's, right? Don't be jerks in the checkout line. You're not hurt. You've got plenty of time. Chill out, right? So not only are you not jerks, you're caring, honoring, maintaining dignity, and extending dignity to others, valuing image bearers of God, living sacrificial lives, yearning to be more and more like Jesus. Like we didn't see you come in to talk to a parent about Lenny. Lenny's had enough of Iona. But there is an abiding quality for everyone in the church, right? And one uh, commentary says, the virtues of sobriety and self-control are given explicitly or implicitly to all four groups here. It would be a mistake to interpret these abstractly. And more faithful to the letter itself is to treat these as qualities that necessarily flow from adopting a worldview marked by the poles of Christ's first and second coming. Given Jesus has come and will come again, believers should live with a sense of clarity, discipline, and purpose. We're all to be self-controlled, avoiding the extremes and living with careful consideration for reasonable and responsible action wherever we are. It's just the truth that gospel sanity brings a steadiness and a sensibility to our lives. That then is meant to work out for the good of others, for those that we relate to in the church. And that's what's at play in Titus 2. So, of course, There is a way of living that follows after the gospel. The gift of grace compels us into the new life we're called to. And eternal living starts now. And this is what it's beginning to look like. Lives of dignity, of honor, of care for one another. And when you believe in Jesus, that he is God in the flesh who lived submitting to the Father in your place, that he died a death that your sin and disregard of God deserved, giving you his righteousness, making you blameless before your creator. When you believe in him, you commit not only to forgiveness, but to his way, to gospel living, to the self-controlled, dignified, gracious life and empowered for all of it by His Spirit. That's a tremendous grace that it's not just like, now you get to it. It's like, I'm giving you my Spirit, power to live in the way that I've called you to live. And so gospel change is from the inside out, not from the outside in. If the heart is healthy, fruit will come. So don't force one another in these things. We invite each other in as the Spirit transforms our hearts and equips us to live in this way. And this fruit is doing something vital. Because by this way of living, you are actually filling the air with fragrance. Just a second short idea that living here adorns the gospel. Now, peppered through this description of gospel living has been the reason for it. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in verse 2, um, 5b here, he says that the word of God may not be reviled. In verse 8b, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
or 10b, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, right? So the lives of the church are proof that the gospel is beautiful, and we're not living for the same pursuits as the world. Instead, we are to be people that are satisfied in Jesus and living like him with others for his glory. That we would be in a community where we're consistently reminded of his grace around others that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And this truly is the life that is better, that is beautiful. We're given family, we're given a belonging, a place to be, a life to live that will spotlight Jesus. And in the New Testament, we never get the sense that Christianity is just meant to be a Sunday thing, a gathering you do to make sure that your resume looks good for those that might eventually hire you, right? It's the life that should be, like, this is often how we approach it. We think, well, Christians should just be indistinguishable from everyone else, except maybe they have the hope of heaven. Well, that's not how the New Testament writes at all, because even in Titus, we've seen the call to the drastic opposite of that, to lives that are set apart, that are distinct, that are made new, that smell different. We've all seen the negative examples, right? Professing Christ, but smelling like something far different than him. And there, there's certainly grace for that, friends. That's why Paul has told Titus to sharply rebuke those that live that way, that they might re return to a soundness of faith. And we recognize here that even in these calls to live Christ-likeness, we will not be perfect. So we just live repentant, leaning into the promise of change, of newness, of Christ-likeness, because he has met the standard of perfection for us. And now he empowers us to live in that life, that newness, that perfection that he carries. And we live from his grace, not for it. We live with each other, this community that carries each other and calls us to life and gives us grace and time to get there. You have to know that a community like this is compelling. The whole final chapter of this letter to Titus and the church on Crete is all about how this church is a compelling witness for the truth of Christ in its world. This actually changes culture. It reveals a better way and it gives witness to Jesus and the invitation is open to all who will come. And we're living lives, friends, that are seen and smelled and may they make the gospel attractive to those that are around us. I think it follows after Jesus' exhortation to the church in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you're witnesses by living in the community looking like this, that the church makes the gospel attractive by how we live. So what do we do with it? Right? Determine just to live like this. From the grace of Christ for you, endeavor to be sober-minded, self-controlled, all that others will see you and want to know where your hope is found. 
And then live that willingness with others, sink into community, throw off the ideal of rugged individualism and see each other as examples, as a refining community on the journey together. Brian Chapel, a pastor and professor, says the progression of Paul's instructions to the various segments of the church indicate that community dynamics are instrumental in influencing others in the church, silencing opponents in the church and reaching unbelievers outside the church. This is the power from which no believer should cut himself or herself off. We're meant to do it together. So determine to live like this, live it with others, and then Live for all to see. Let your light shine. Right? Are you going to hide it under a bushel? No. That's a, Lance is hoping I was going to break into song. Maybe that's it. This little light of mine. How's it go? I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> right? This little light of mine. Derry wants to keep on singing. He's always wants to. He wants to let it shine. Okay, you get it. Right? Does that count? Did I sing enough? Okay, good. Let your light shine. Adorn the gospel as you live relying on Jesus. Now, remember, this is not, I carry myself as the heir of perfection that you all wish. No, this is a, a humble embrace of the way of life that Christ has called us to. That, that we needed rescue, that he gave it and now tells us that we get to live. He says to us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let others see that. Honor others. Invite them in. It's really Titus 2 for us is just a smell check. Right? Did you do that? Teenage voice. It's like, ooh, can I go hang out? I never do that because I always smell great. But may the fragrance that people smell from us be one of life, forgiveness, freedom, and a place to call home because that's who Jesus has purposed for us to be. Shall we live it together? Let's pray. Good and holy God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you even for sometimes where there's descriptions that we don't fully understand or ways of thinking that conflict with what we see on the pages of scripture, but that by your spirit we can have an understanding and live in light of these truths that we're called to live by. Lord, we just ask for a, a fresh empowerment to live um, like you, Jesus. The Spirit would work in us, uh, solidify our hope and satisfaction in you, Jesus, and then from there, set us down a path that looks like you, that is dignified, that is self-controlled, that is sober-minded, that cares for others near 